regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hello everyone, uh, welcome to a new episode of Datacast and today I have the pleasure to speak with uh, Francesca Lazzari. Francesca with a PhD is an experienced scientist and machine learning practitioner with over 12 years of both academic and industry experience. She is the author of a number of publications including technology journals, conferences and books. She currently leads an international team of cloud advocates and developers at Microsoft, managing a large portfolio of customers in the academic and education sector and building intelligent automated solution on the cloud. Uh, before joining Microsoft, she was a research fellow at Harvard University in the Technology and Operation Management Unit. She is also an advisory board member of the Global Women in Data Science Initiative, a machine learning mentor at MIT and Columbia University, and uh, in general, just an active member of the AI community. So yeah, Francesca, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here and uh, answering any questions that you can have related to machine learning, AI, data science. Thank yeah, you, so, James. Absolutely. So uh, I want to begin our conversation uh, discussing your, you know, your education. You, so you're actually from Italy, right? So yes. you study economics and uh, institutional study at the LUISS Guido Kali University for your master and yep. then economics and technology innovation at St. Anna University for your PhD. So uh, yeah, would you mind quickly going over your educational experience? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, as you said, uh, I am from Italy. So I completed the part of my studies in uh, Italy. I, uh, I have a, a background in uh, economics because uh, both for my uh, bachelor, master, and then for my PhD, uh, I study uh, deg those degrees were in economics. Uh, the difference between, I would say, the master and the PhD is that during my PhD, I was able to understand also the uh, interactions between the technology and uh, uh, different economic systems. So I was studying e exactly that specific sector that is uh, these intersections between technology and uh, economy in general. Um, so I have, a, as I said, a strong economic background. During my PhD, I was uh, lucky enough to uh, conduct a few research and these researchers were all uh, data driven. So I have to say that I've been studying econometrics, statistics, since uh, my bachelor, but then during the PhD, I was really able to use data to uh, run and perform a different type of analysis. And the good thing is that at that time, of course, in order to run these type of statistic econometrics analysis, you had to have also a software that you could use in order to make sure that, you know, your analysis were run in a 
consistent way and also uh, the, the results were ready uh, for publications. So at that time I was using a lot of SPSS, uh, Theta, but also SQL, R, Python, that were all the languages that they were very good for uh, statistics in general. I would say at that time, uh, especially R was very, very strong for any type of data analysis task. And uh, so I started again uh, to run this uh, type of economics analysis also using uh, technologies, which was a great combination for me because uh, that uh, also allowed me actually to, after, after my PhD, to look also for uh, different positions outside academia. I, uh, as, you, as you said, I, uh, I, I didn't uh, uh, complete my studies path in Italy because I was lucky enough after Santana School of Advanced Study to move to the United States. Uh, here in the United States, I was conducting a similar type of research, but at Harvard, uh, Harvard Business School specifically, I was working with uh, several different professors, uh, specifically Professor Gary Pisano uh, in the Technology Operations Management Unit. This was uh, immediately after my, my PhD. And the type of analysis that I was running there were similar in the sense that there was always this combination of a tech component and how these different technologies, these different innovation partners were also affecting specific economies, local economies, but also global economies. Mm-hmm. Um, again, for running this type of analysis, we were using a lot of data. And I have to say Harvard was a great opportunity for me because because it was very easy for them to gather different data, both the external source of data, but also external source of data. And then I was using different type of frameworks. At the time, I was using a lot R uh, to run my analysis and to get my data, my results ready for uh, publications. So that was, again, a great experience. It was a fully academic experience because, uh, again, I started in Italy with my master PhD. And then uh, thanks to my master and PhD, I arrived at Harvard because at Harvard, there was the Technology Operation Management Unit. Unit, uh, that was very, very interesting and similar type of uh, research and data analysis. And then that opened the door for me also for uh, the data science world. That is, uh, again, it's a, it's a broad term, as you know, uh, data science, but is uh, uh, always very related to data economy in general, and also statistics. So I I would say that uh, these three different areas are really, really interconnected when we uh, think about the data science and how we can use the data science to improve specific business operations, for example. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks a lot for for sharing your your experience. And it seems like you pick up a a lot of technical skills during your study of econ and statistics during your, your graduate degree, right? Just kind of going back to that point, right? So you said you, after you finished your PhD, you uh, you went to uh, Harvard Business School to to pursue that that uh, postdoc research fellowship in economics. Yeah, I'm just curious, you know, any particular reason why Harvard specifically, and or maybe like why the US first of all, and then why Harvard? Because obviously, like you can choose anywhere between in the world, you know, or even in Europe. So I'm just curious, and, and also like I'm very curious just to hear about what is sort of your experience, the educational system in Italy, in Europe, and versus which are spent in the US as well, yeah. 
Yeah, this is another uh, wonderful question. So let's start with the first part. Uh, why Boston and why Harvard? Honestly, I always wanted to go outside Italy to get some uh, international experience, especially from a work professional point of view. I love Italy. I have been living there and studying there for a long time. So it's not that I, uh, I really wanted to move to another place, but I wanted to go and eventually join a research unit in a another country you know everywhere in Europe or also Asia uh, United States uh, it was at the end of the, 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 the final decision but I was really open to uh, to get a, a different perspective different uh, international type of perspective specifically in the research and professional world uh, so when uh, I started doing my PhD um, one of the requirements uh, for the PhD was to conduct a part of your PhD thesis so part of your research with a, a, a professor or with a research unit outside Italy, so uh, anywhere that wasn't Italy. However, there, there were a specific channels because, as you can imagine, every uh, academic institution has a, um, its own, uh, I would say, connections and also networks that are all based, of course, on the type of research that they conduct together. Uh, this was a very, very interesting for me to understand better while I was doing my PhD. And one of these networks and connections for that specific university, uh, Santana Scuola d'Advanced Study in, uh, in Pisa, uh, was Harvard. And uh, then, so, um, ha it was really part of a sort of fellowship program for students. So, they were, how it works is that uh, you, you have to prepare a few papers uh, that uh, even, even if they're not really published, at least they are in a very good shape. So, they are ready to get published. And uh, basically, what you do, you send those papers to different professors that are in this network of your universities and these professors are um, already conducting uh, similar type of research in, uh, in your area. So it's not, it has to be a lot of that type of research that the professor is conducting with uh, their own research units. They, they have to be like in line with uh, your research. Uh, so there has to be a sort of real match there. Uh, so it's, it's really a sort of um, I would say application problem, uh, applications process. And uh, um, so I, I sent these, uh, there were actually different universities in the pool. Uh, there wasn't only Harvard, but Harvard was one of, the, of those. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, there was the technology operation management unit because Harvard is a, such a big word and uh, there are many different departments, uh, research units. Uh, within the, the same uh, Harvard Business uh, School, there are many different uh, research units. So. Uh, specifically the technology operation management unit was very, very interested in the type of research that I was conducting. So I went through this application process. Um, again, I was lucky enough to find a, a professor and a research unit that were very, very interested in what I was doing. And I, I did, of course, the interviews and then I was accepted in this program. So I, I think that um, what is nice when you do a, a PhD uh, specifically in, a, uh, in another country outside the, the United States is the fact that if you have these specific programs that can support you in these international relations, it's perfect because at least you know that you have always to find a, a match between your research and the other research unit type of research. And also another important aspect is that you have to have like your papers you know, written and ready to be published because if not, you don't have enough material 
materials to share and to uh, to use for your application. Uh, but at least these programs, these uh, channels really support students and researchers around the world to work together and you are not just working in silos in your own uh, lab. So this was the main reason why Boston and why uh, Harvard, just because again, there was this direct connection between uh, the professors I was working uh, with in Italy and uh, the professors in uh, the United States. The second question that, the second part of the question that I think it's uh, it's very, very uh, interesting is uh, uh, the main difference between the education system in Italy and the American one. So uh, I think that when you get to advanced level of education, like at the PhD levels, you don't don't really see a, a big difference. However, I, uh, when I was at uh, Harvard, even if I was really uh, working, I was not really studying. I was still trying to attend uh, some classes just for my, you know, uh, own uh, learning and curiosity. And uh, I uh, realized that the American system puts a lot of emphasis on practical approach of uh, problems, like how to solve a problem. So you learn the theory, uh, you, you learn all the important concepts, and then there is always a way somehow to put that type of learning into practice. I mean, this can be done through different type of labs or also through uh, office hours that were organized. And so there is a, a very important emphasis also because at the end of the class, the students are going to be measured or uh, let's say the, the final <clears throat> the final result is going to be based on these two aspects of course how much they understood and studied the theory but also how much they were able to implement the solution out of it i think in italy um, we have a strong emphasis on the theory which is extremely important i mean i'm not saying that uh, we shouldn't have that uh, i think it's it's important and you know the theory and also sometimes the, the math approach to problems is is very important you have to have the strong foundation in order then to build your own application or to do your own research however i think that one of the main feedback that i would give i would give to my italian professor and my schools in italy is that we should also have a strong emphasis on the practical side of it and eventually organize even more labs even more office hours where students can just put in practice what they have learned again i think it's just a sort of a cultural difference. Uh, there is nothing wrong with the any of those systems. It's just that when I was in the United States, I really like, uh, I really, really appreciated this uh, practical aspect because I was also, you know, working and I was also looking for uh, opportunities outside academia because you are always, when you are a, stud a student, you are always uh, debating between should I stay in academia or should I go for industry? And having this uh, practical approach really, really helped me also uh, once I decided to move uh, into the industry. Yeah, thanks a lot, Francesca, for sharing the differences between sort of the two yep. different education systems. And yeah, so so as, as we transition, you know, kind of talking about that practical um, experience that you, you, you got at Harvard, right? So during your, your postdoc, and you actually mentioned a little bit earlier in, in my first question, but you work on multiple uh, data-driven projects to investigate and measure the impact of external knowledge networks on companies' competitiveness and innovation. So yeah, can, can you, uh, you know, I guess just elaborate a bit more on, on this and, you know, maybe give an, an example project that you work on? 
Yes, absolutely. This is a, a very, you know, interesting question for me because I, I work on this topic for many years. And, uh, so um, the type of approach that we took, it's, uh, it's very similar to what you just described in the sense that uh, we were looking at uh, different typologies of uh, data. So we were using the different types of uh, data sets such as uh, social data from uh, Twitter, for example, uh, but also publication data and citation data data. And all these data were actually collected from external sources uh, because it wasn't, they were not the data uh, that were produced by my school in Italy or Harvard. So we were all using these external data sources and we started building a sort of a data pipeline. It's a real, uh, real data architecture that we put together to collect all these data. And we were looking also at the specific geographical component. Uh, this component uh, was uh, based on different uh, geographical clusters uh, that were the Boston cluster and also the San Diego and the San Francisco, the Bay Area, I would say, uh, cluster. These geographical clusters are also economic cluster and what we call uh, also knowledge cluster because there are specific type of industries and specific type of people with a common skill set that they usually go in these clusters and you know they live there they start their career there they work there and uh, so we were also looking at the type of innovations that they were generating of course for innovation, we had to use multiple proxies, such as, uh, for example, the number of patents that they were filing or uh, the number of publications and the different topics that, uh, um, scientific topics that they were publishing. And um, so we uh, started an, a look at these, uh, these different networks and uh, we were trying to use uh, social data like from Twitter, but also uh, citation and publication type of data to understand uh, how much this innovation network, first of all, was interacting between each other, how much like this uh, being close uh, from a geographical point of view was uh, important uh, in terms of uh, economic impact. And the second, how, what was the economic impact on uh, these uh, geographical region, these geographical clusters. So as you can see, this is a, a typical case of using different data sources and uh, run a sort of uh, text analytics type of analysis also to understand if this type of uh, scientific group were uh, influencing each other, each other in terms of the type of innovations that they were working on and also uh, what was the level of different citations. And as you know, citation is a type of information that is a text. So the type of data that you're looking at are text. And uh, you can have this information both at the patent level, um, because you, when you file a patent, you have to cite also all the other patents that uh, somehow help you to get there or uh, somehow that uh, uh, were there before you were filing or working on a specific innovation and also in publications. So in publications, you can see exactly what's the topic that you're working on, uh, who are the scientists working on that specific topic and what are the different uh, publications that you are citing. Uh, of course, uh, this uh, is a very broad uh, sector. So we decided to focus on a specific sector that is the biotech sector. And that's why we also uh, selected those uh, three different uh, 
geographical clusters uh, such as uh, the Boston area, San Diego and the Bay Area, because these are also three strong knowledge clusters in terms of uh, biotech. Uh, so a lot of innovations were happening there. So that was, uh, I would say, a really uh, wonderful project to be uh, on. And of course, I just, uh, for many years, we just focus on this specific industry. We were looking at these specific geographical areas and we were using this type of data. But what would be interesting to see in the future is also uh, if um, the same type of model and the same type of data can actually be used for other industries. I don't know, the finance industry, or now with the access to uh, other different uh, type of data sources, how these data sources can actually improve the accuracy of these models. And of course, the other important aspect for us was the economic aspect, because of course, I was uh, under Harvard Business School, and so we were also trying to understand if uh, there were different uh, policies uh, at the economic system uh, or at the government system that were actually helping these uh, economic development for this biotech industry. Again, I would love to, to keep working on this, but you know, I, I completed that type of research uh, and then I decided to move on to, to different uh, topics, but this was the main topic that I focused on during that period. Very interesting. So I'm just curious, like, so, so out of all, all those three clusters, right, San Diego, the Bay Area, and, and, and Boston, like, what do you see to be like, what, what's the difference in, in terms of innovation? What, what city seems to have the most amount of innovation and um, economic power in, in the biotech sector? Let's say for someone who's interested in working in biotech right now. Yeah, you know, no, no, no. And the- uh, yes, and biotech is uh, also is an industry that uh, is uh, using the data and, uh, you know, everything related to machine learning a lot for their own research. So that's, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I, I would say that the main difference that we found was that the biotech cluster in the Boston area was actually the ones that in the last few years, and that was uh, from 2012 until 2014, because that is when we look at the historical data, was the one that was producing most innovations and uh, especially in terms of patents and they were extremely affecting somehow the innovation at the local level so they were not really looking too much or trying to interact too much with other clusters while there was uh, uh, San Diego in the Bay Area uh, clusters that were the first one who produced a very very important innovations but uh, much earlier in time and then they, they slowed down a little bit and they were very active with also interacting uh, with different clusters in Europe. So, and for them, the geographical distance was actually not a huge deal uh, because again, they were, you know, working through patents, publications, and all these things are, all these type of informations. uh, Also, when we think about uh, social media, they were online. And so they were actually very, very active on, uh, I would say, international uh, type of collaborations. And so they were also there, the type of uh, research that they were doing uh, was very, very affected by other research, especially in Europe. And then uh, another difference uh, that we notice uh, a lot again is that uh, the Boston cluster was uh, actually impacting the economy of Boston at much higher levels than uh, the other two. I think that that was uh, something that we uh, also, we also kept in consideration the fact of the geographical areas. I have to say that uh, Boston and specifically the Cambridge area, it's very, very 
very compact and that was like a huge effect that they produce on the economy of Massachusetts in general. Uh, while the rest, the other two clusters, they still were very uh, effective in terms of uh, how they were impacting the local economies because of course uh, California in general it's a, it's a great state and you know, economy is at the time, especially in biotech, was going very, very well. However, the level was not as high as the Boston one. So there were a few differences. And other important things that we were trying to understand if it was if the local clusters and the local, say, proximity was important for these type of innovations. And the main answer was that no, at that time, being the same cluster was not impacting like the, the level of innovation too much especially for the two clusters in California. I would be interested to see if COVID-19 has changed this. I'm sure that now we can gather many, many, many more data and see if you know, all, all the interactions between the scientists, innovations, patents, publications have been changed so far. So yeah. Yeah, thanks a lot for going into detail on that one. Yeah. Of I course. Mean, Boston has always been been quite well, well known for like biotech and, and, and healthcare in general. So I think that makes a lot of sense that uh, yep. it has significant proportionally speaking from have an impact in the whole economy compared yes. to the other two. So in twenty fourteen you joined Microsoft as a data scientist in the cloud and enterprise division. Well, first of all, you know, why Microsoft and second night, what were some of the initial projects that you work on in, in your first few months at the company? Yeah, why Microsoft? Honestly, um, just because at that time I was uh, in Boston and I was looking for a different type of openings in the industry as a data scientist. And uh, Microsoft was always actually, it's always been a very innovative uh, company. So they were already creating these uh, data science uh, uh, teams at that time. One of those teams was based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, so for me, again, being uh, um, closer to a sort of data science cluster in this case that Microsoft and other tech companies were creating was a, a just just easy to access because of course when you have to go through the interview process and uh, being already in that uh, in that geographical area can help a lot so i apply for microsoft for as a data scientist and i was very fascinated by how they were looking at data science because at that time uh, we thought that uh, data science in general was just another term to say statistics or to you know use data to run just some data analysis but microsoft was already looking at data science as a way to make sure first of all that was accessible to everyone they never thought about you know data science as just a sort of elitist program that only a specific phd can work on but there were really there was this democratization idea of data science that microsoft was really embracing so that was the first thing that i really really like and then also um, the fact that they were looking at the data science as a way to really improve uh, processes and businesses which was for me very uh, interesting because it wasn't just about building a nice beautiful machine learning models but it was more about okay this is the data this is the problem how we use data science to help these specific customers or to improve an internal process uh, to make our life better so this uh, this was honestly the 
two main reasons why I decided to join Microsoft. And in terms of the first projects that I work on, I, I start working with the external customers. So that was a great time because I was able to deal with the external customers' data, real data. So it wasn't like perfect data or, you know, a sample data set that I could use to demo something. But I really had to use real data, raw data, and to build the solutions with those type of customers. I have to say that most of the customers I work with the first years of my career were from the energy sector and also some of them from the finance sector. And I have to say that these two sectors have been using machine learning, data science, and big data for a long time, much before that, you know, the role of data scientists became so popular and fancy. The energy sector, as we know, I think it's, they are one of the first uh, industries uh, that start using big data because they have uh, these uh, big usage of the sensor data in their you know grids or in their buildings uh, just to understand better how uh, a specific area how, how a specific geography is uh, consuming uh, um, energy and how we can improve that and the other is the finance sector as we know they have been using many different data sources and they are actually very very advanced also in terms of the different technologies and the different softwares that they use for their own solutions so for me again working with customers for both sectors was was great because the type of role that I was I was playing at that time as a data scientist was really to use to learn a lot about the data that they had and understand better how uh, the cloud and most importantly machine learning on the cloud could help them uh, improve a specific type of processes. And this was again a great learning experience because again I was working on different type of data and of course I was also bringing to the table my experience as a, as a researcher in Italy and then at Harvard in terms of the type of models and the type of data preparation that we could uh, use for this type of data. But the nice thing is that I was always working very closely with uh, data experts and business experts. So it, it I wasn't like just doing, again, my models and uh, that's it. I was always uh, uh, trying to understand why we were using some data, if the results were making sense or no, and how we could use uh, Azure in order to implement those uh, solutions. Yeah, this looks like it's also a nice transition between your, your time at Harvard because at Harvard, you're also working on problems that are concerning a lot about you know, business impact. And it seems like your first exposure at Microsoft's also working very closely with customer. And then so that, that natural um, exposure to you know, the, the customer and understand the, the, the business impact of your, I agree. Um, your, your model yeah. as well, right? Yes, totally. So in, in the next four years or so, you work within the AI research organization within Microsoft. The main goal here is to deploy machine learning algorithms and build predictive analytics solutions to solve real-world business problems for Microsoft external customer. You know, from, from talking with countless customers during this period, what did you notice to be some of the common challenge of deploying research solutions to solve industry problems? Yes, uh, so I would say that most of the time as a data scientist, you find yourself in front of two different types 
types of customers. There are customers that they are very knowledgeable about the data and also the different machine learning models that they can that they can use, but they have just little knowledge in terms of the different technologies. And in this case, I'm specifically referring to the cloud platforms and how they can use these technologies platforms in order to improve their machine learning solutions. And then the second category of customers is actually the opposite. They, there are customers that are, they have been on the cloud for many, many years. They know how to use a different type of technologies, sometimes even different clouds, but they have little knowledge on how they can leverage their data, internal data, but also external data to improve their solutions or to answer, to solve the business problem. This is what I learned like during these first years at Microsoft, as you said, four years um, as a data scientist, because uh, really you have to be, to always keep it, I would say, an open mindset. And uh, if you are going to work with the first category, uh, which is again, people who really know a lot, they are very knowledgeable about, about the data machine learning, it's still a great experience for you because sometimes you can learn about different uh, machine learning applications, like how you can, um, use a different type of algorithms, for example, to solve a specific problem with a, a specific industry data uh, that you never touched before. And then you play more like the role of the cloud expert. Uh, um, there is also this role that is like the, the cloud solution architect. So you, uh, you're not really going to, to play that role because you're still a 100% a data scientist, but you're going to work with uh, data engineers, with the cloud solution architects, and with the customer itself to make sure that uh, there is this uh, transition between, uh, I mean, to, to move all the data of the customers and all their machine learning models that were developed in-house on the cloud. And so there is so much to learn. And I have to say that is the moment in which you learn a lot more about machine learning and data. Uh, so how you can, you know, uh, use a different uh, data, how you can uh, perform different type of feature engineering, because it's really, you are learning from the customers and you are learning from also their industry experience and the type of knowledge that you are giving back to them is about the cloud and the potential that this technology can, can have, uh, the type of also impact that this technology can have on their business. For the second category, which I also love, uh, it's a different type of learning experience because in that case, the first things that you need to do is to run a lot of workshops or um, I would say labs at the beginning to show them really what's machine learning and how they can use the data. Most of the time, uh, you know, you can invite customers on site or you can just do these workshop online, like webinars. When you take, a, I would say, I usually start with a simple business problems. Like for example, I want to predict the cost of a specific car and I have all these different features uh, such as the brand, the color, the milliage of the car, the geographical region, you know, uh, you can and the external economic indicators that you can include and how I'm going to build the model using these uh, specific features. And for example, how I can use just Python to build this machine learning model. So but while you're using a very simple use case, you are teaching them somehow how Python can be very useful and how specific Python libraries can be useful in solving that problem. And then of course, uh, this is just a, a few workshop. Then sometimes you also help them uh, eventually 
actually hire some data scientists on their side because then those are going to be like your collaborators for a long time and then you are the ones who actually build the machine learning model so it's a, a lot about learning from their data and building the right machine learning model for their own uh, specific business problem but then you don't touch all the um, the cloud aspect or the solution architect aspect usually you have very a lot of help from their side they have their own cloud solution architects they have their own data engineers that just take what you have produced what you have created and they push it into productions and they uh, get it from there they take care of it from there uh, so this is what I learn and I have to say in both cases you learn a lot so my suggestions for data scientists really to not have any sort of concerns when they start their career because there is always going to be a situation in, in which you are going to learn something new uh, that is going to be related to of course your role data science machine learning data um, handling and so on and that is the beauty of the data science uh, so find yourself in different situations and try to get the most out of it so based on what you said you know two different types of customer two different types of challenges right so first time yes. if your customer is an already expert and you you can take care of the, the cloud aspect you know the architecture and if, if your, your customer are a beginner then you actually must be an active play an active role of educating them right providing knowledge on on how um using ml can, can exactly. help with this problem so yeah obviously like two different things but but you know they they both require certain skill set right yeah absolutely you're totally right as we in, in the topic of organization adopting data science solution you know you wrote an article on infoq last year called the data science mindset six principles to be a healthy data-driven organization this article proposed the healthy data science organization framework which is a portfolio of methodology technologies resources that could assist organization in becoming more data-driven can you unpack this framework for the listeners Yes, absolutely. As you said, that is a really a framework that I think any organizations or any teams who wants to get started with data science in general should keep in mind. Of course, it depends on what you want to achieve and how many resources, of course, you have. So these six principles don't have to be there for every single situation, every single case. But I would say these are sort of the best six practices that I usually suggest to data science team and data science organization to uh, follow. Um, so that uh, article was very nice because I somehow summarize all the different things that I learned as a data scientist in the past few years. And I put together this article, as we said, it has a three different, uh, six different principles. So the first one is understand the business and the decision making process. So this is very, uh, is a principle that uh, I already mentioned during this conversation with you, especially at the beginning of my career at Microsoft, what I really, really like is that they were looking at data science as a tool for making better business or for improving business operations, internal business operation or external. When I say external, I mean also for users or for customers. So having this business mindset, it's very, very important when you do data science, even if you are you know, in a technical position, in a technical role, so you are a data scientist, you still have to keep that type of business-oriented mindset uh, because every single decision that you're going to make during your data science journey in order to build a solution has to be related to a business or to a, a business problem. Uh, so just to give you some uh, practical examples, 
I don't know if I mentioned this, uh, this example in my article, but uh, like, for example, in the case that uh, you are dealing with the customers uh, that wants to optimize uh, the inventory of their products because they realize that uh, they have different stores around the world. And uh, for some stores, uh, they, uh, they have an overload of products, uh, so they don't really sell all the products uh, by the end of the month. But for other stores, they actually sell more than uh, predicted. So um, in this case, so they have they have less products that the demand is actually asking for. Uh, so as you can see, this is just a classical inventory optimization problem and is a real is the real business problem. So as a data scientist, first of all, you have to understand what's the data set that you can use uh, from this specific use case from the customers in order to answer part of this question or at least the first step in, towards this uh, goal. And in this case can be that just, uh, for example, sales forecasting or demand forecasting can help help you answering this uh, optimization problem. So uh, as you see, you're already uh, translating a business problem into a, into a machine learning, into a data science problems. And this is, again, something that you can do only when you have a, a very good knowledge of the business, of the data related to that specific business and of the decision-making process. And most of the time, it's not you as a data scientist that needs to have that knowledge, but you're going to work with the people who are going to transfer that knowledge to you or people who are going to work together with you in order to uh, make sure that, uh, you know, this business understanding is always going to be included in your uh, data science solution. The second principle is establish a performance metric. So this is very related to understanding the business because every time that you're going to translate the business question into a data science questions, you also have to understand and define uh, both the business metrics but also the machine learning metrics that you're going to use in order to uh, affirm that your solution is good enough to be pushed into production. Again, this is a, a, a duo that is very important to keep in mind uh, because it's not just about the accuracy of the model but it's also about the business metrics, the performance metrics that you want to achieve. And then as a third step, it's very important to think about the pipeline, the data pipeline, the end-to-end -end pipeline, because again, I think a lot of the data scientists enter the industry thinking that they are going to be responsible only of, uh, for the machine learning model, and that's it. So their work is, is done. But honestly, if you want to grow in your career, you have to have this clear overview of what's the data data is about, what's the data ingestion step, what's the data preparation, you know, the, the feature engineering part, then testing different model, uh, training your model, evaluating, and also the retraining. So you always have to keep in mind that this is a solution that you are responsible for, and you also have to think in terms of how can you automate this solution and make sure that, you know, there are no bugs and this architecture, end-to-end -end architecture is actually uh, working. Of course, you're never going to find yourself alone doing this. You're going to always work with a team. But still, if you work with a team, uh, you don't have to think about yourself as a person that is going to work in silos, but you always have to have this overview of what's going on into the end-to-end -end architecture. 
Then uh, I think the fourth step is about building your toolbox of data science tricks. So this is more based on the experience. So of course, something that you can eventually put together after a, a few years of working in the industry, uh, you're always going to have some uh, templates or some algorithms that you feel more comfortable with. And sometimes you also have what we call the pre-trained models, like cognitive services that you can use just to call an API and train your machine learning models. So these uh, tricks are somehow based again on your experience and you can always make sure that uh, these uh, templates uh, or these pre-trained models are there also for your team so that other people across your organization can reuse some of these knowledge in order to uh, make the data science development uh, process much, much faster. And uh, I have to say that the last two principles are uh, are also very important and somehow they are like very very close to each other the fifth one is uh, unify your organization's data science vision that is about really uh, make data science a part of the business decision process never think about uh, data science as a something fancy to have like uh, since everybody is uh, talking about the data science and ai i also have to put together a team of data scientists but no really think about data science as a, like a finance research unit or sorry unit not research like a finance unit or as a marketing or as a sales unit so all these units are essential to a business because you cannot really run a business if for example you don't have a sales representative the same is with data science so if you don't feel that need probably it's not the time for your company to have a data science team but if you feel like that data science can really help your business as it's going to be an important asset in your uh, business. So then it's it's time to bring this in and make sure that this is aligned with all the other units in your uh, company. And similar to the sixth principle that is about keeping humans uh, in the loop, here, I mean, something that I always mention to data scientists that, yes, AI is uh, is great and is going to help us uh, the, the automation process of uh, many different uh, systems. However, humans always have to be there because they have to make sure that uh, the data that we are using is a good data. Also, there are all the other issues related to ethics, uh, responsible machine learning. And uh, so it's important always to make sure that data scientists, the business experts, uh, but also experts from other units in your company are there and they are guiding you through this uh, data science uh, journey. Yeah, thanks a lot for really going into the details. Of, um, yeah, you know, thank you. <laughs> talking about the principles. Yeah, and I think that the, the feed point on unifying the organization that is the sense vision is really like, you know, really about like the data science team have a front seat within the the org structure. So in, a lot of the time, you feel like you know data science got to put under product or under engineering, right? Uh, especially exactly. some of the media tech company. It seems like if, if the company mature more in terms of the data quality and data process, that uh, can be a really good suggestion. On, on to the third principle, which is architecting the end-to-end solution, right? My understanding is that another big responsibility of your role is to collect and utilize customer feedback to work with engineering teams to improve Azure AI, which is yep. Microsoft's AI platform for the cloud. And yeah, you actually also given various talk at, at different conferences in, um, you know, over the US and, and in Europe on a couple of the use cases of Azure AI. What are some of the unique challenges associated with building an end-to-end enterprise platform like Azure? 
Yes. So this is a very important question because I would say that a lot of data scientists and machine learning practitioners in general, they think that, you know, the data preparation process is probably one of the most challenging. And I agree, it's, it's for sure some of the most challenging steps that we have to deal with. And when I say data preprocessing, data preparation, of course, I mean also data cleaning and feature engineering. However, for me, another important step that has been very interesting, I would say, is uh, the machine learning deployment part and the operationalization part. Because again, uh, and this is something that I always repeat uh, in my in my talks, in my presentation, but also in my meetings with the, uh, my team, is building beautiful models. It's it's very cool. It's very nice. But then you have always to think about how you can deploy this model, push this model into productions and operationalize them, meaning that you have to make sure that your models can be consumed by other people in your company or by external customers. This is something that, again, required a lot of thinking because in order to get there, of course, you have to build this end-to-end data science architecture that somehow helps you also to get to the point to, in, in which you are ready to publish your model. But then your model also somehow has to be refreshed over time. So all the retraining part is also important and is part, again, of the operationalization uh, solution or uh, operationalization uh, step. I have to say that uh, this has been probably very, very challenging at the beginning uh, of the data science era because, again, a lot of uh, people were just uh, focusing on the data science science aspect, on the modeling aspect, and they were not thinking about how uh, other people can actually benefit from your data science machine learning uh, solution. Nowadays, uh, I think that we are doing much, much better. There are many tools uh, in place, such as uh, MLOps, for example, that uh, is great at helping you not, not only with the operationalization, with the deployment of your model, but also with the automation part. So every time that you are eventually using different type of machine learning models, you can also um, refresh them and you can also look at different metrics for those models in order to monitor them over time. So MLOps, that is basically DevOps for machine learning, is a, a practice that right now is very, very common and helps you a lot uh, in these. Uh, and then another, of course, important aspect is that right now on the cloud, there are many, many different tools, packages that you can just use in order to create this deployment of your uh, model so that you have have, again, an API that then you can use to call it uh, from different applications in order to consume this model uh, over, uh, over time. Like at Microsoft, we have Azure Machine Learning Designer, uh, which is this uh, drag-and-drop tool. And I have to say that the deployment experience over there, it's very, very nice. It's very, very uh, user-friendly. If you decide to use the Python SDK, which a lot of people prefer to use because you can actually code everything from scratch and you, know, you have uh, that type of visibility that is important and sometimes for data scientists, is still very nice because you have just some functions that you can use in order to deploy your model. So uh, I have to say that with all these tools, and I just mentioned some of them, like MLOps, Designer, Python, as a data scientist, we are, I would say, in a much better situation right now because, again, this operationalization part has become also very important and a lot of people understand the importance of this part. However, if you ask me if uh, this was a, a 
challenge. Yes, it was a challenge and it's something that I have been seeing many times during my career as a, as a data scientist. And yes, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm very, very glad that we got to a point where this step and the experience with this final step is much, much better. Absolutely. And we're actually going to talk about that uh, deployment aspect later on. But um, yeah. since July of 2018, my understanding you move into the Cloud AI Advocates team. And yeah. uh, the, the role of this team is to democratize the education access and consumption of machine learning tools and application on Azure. Yes. Um, so I'm just curious, you know, what does a typical day-to-day look like for you? Yeah, being in the cloud advocacy team has been like um, wonderful because again, it gave me the opportunity to lead a a team. And when you have, you know, a team that you can work with, of course, you see a lot of uh, results and also the uh, somehow the, the the velocity that you that you see these results of is much much faster. Like, and also the type of impact that you can have on your customers is is great. So I'm very very grateful for this uh, opportunity. I have to say, my everyday uh, job is really now that we are all working from home for a while. Is really uh, about I wake up, I I check all my emails uh, since I am a lead of this uh, of this team. I get a lot of emails, and so I probably spend the first first few hours of my morning just replying to the most important emails. And then usually around the 9, 9.30, I close the email, the inbox, and I start doing some uh, some of my work as an individual contributor. Most of the time, my uh, work is uh, with uh, specific customers. Mm-hmm. Right now, uh, my team is uh, focusing on customers in the uh, education and academic ecosystem, which is great because these are all the universities, academic institutions who are uh, using the cloud in order to run their research, but also in order to improve their teaching experiences, especially in this, in this period of, of history where uh, a lot of students uh, are learning from home or remotely because they cannot go on campus. So we really use all our technologies and specifically also technologies related to AI machine learning in order to build the end-to-end solutions for our customers in the academic sector. So I usually spend, I would say, five, six hours a day building something using, again, different tools on Azure, from Azure Machine Learning to Designer to Visual Studio Code, Python SDK to, to really build these solutions. And then I always have uh, towards the end of the day, I would say, when I say towards the end of the day, I would say starting from four, I always have some uh, meetings, uh, either with the customers or with my team. I take these uh, meetings, of course, most of the time are working sessions where we work together and we share what we have built. And then uh, towards the end of the day, of course, I check my emails again, because that is another important source of information for me. I try again to have sometimes to close outlook just because I realized that if you're getting emails and notification all the time, it uh, can be distracting. And also because if I close outlook, uh, I keep always a Teams, which is our internal chat open. So if people, of course, have something urgent to communicate to me, uh, they know that they can just write uh, to me on, tweet, on Teams. They don't have to, uh, to send an email. And so I always uh, work on the assumptions that if you send me an email, it's something that can wait at least for a few hours. That That is my assumption. And that's been working very well uh, for these years. So I conclude my day with, you know, again, checking emails and uh, answering to all uh, the emails that uh, I, I didn't answer before. So this is my everyday type of work. Yeah, thanks a lot for being very detailed. On, on of course. A lot of, lot of emails, a lot of 
Yes. <laughs> As you mentioned, like a big part of your role is to kind of write public materials that evangelize Microsoft Azure yep. AI. The blog was this one is called Azure Machine Learning Deployment Workflow. Yep. Uh, it represents Azure Cloud's analytics environment that makes it easy to collect, collect data, analyze data, run experiment, and view models for any organization to use. You actually, you know, talk about like you mentioned that deployment. Obviously, one of the biggest challenge in in any scenario. So. What are the different components in a typical Azure deployment workflow? Yes, so this is another uh, great uh, question. I mentioned that uh, some of the aspects uh, that we are now using for this uh, workflow and for these uh, machine learning deployment uh, cycles are related to what we call right now MLOps, so DevOps for machine learning, that is really helping us uh, with, uh, I would say, with automating the end-to-end machine learning model development. However, the different steps that are in uh, machine learning model development are always the same. It's not that with MLOps, they change. It's just that there is this additional support, this additional layer that you can leverage in order to make your experience much more enjoyable, I would say, and also less risky because there are less risk in terms of, you know, bugs or things that are not working. So in terms of the steps, as I said, uh, they are actually the same. So in Azure, we define the first step as a sort of train the model. So your model, of course, has to be trained because that is the part where you start with the, de- uh, with the deployment uh, step. Everything that is before train model, of course, is still part of the machine learning development cycle, but it's not considered, of course, part of the deployment part deployment step. Everything that is about data ingestions, cleaning, feature engineering, training, testing, evaluation is not part. So once you have your train model, the second step is what we call the model registry. So you have to register the model in a registry that is usually hosted on Azure Machine Learning and is usually hosted on your workspace. The workspace is just this environment on the cloud where you work with other data scientists and you run a different machine learning learning experiments. After the model registry, there is what we call editor. So you, you can use the different tools. I, uh, you can use also, for example, right now, uh, Visual Studio Code, which is uh, uh, very popular among uh, developers and data scientists. What you can do is uh, you can use uh, this uh, code editor to register this image that is usually matched with a specific model scoring script. And then also you have to define all the dependencies. What we mean is that the scoring script is usually is just a script in which you define the two different type of functions, the init function and the run function. These two functions, you have to think about just you're telling other people what your model needs to eat and how uh, you need to prepare this recipe for it. So it's about how the data needs to be prepared in order to, to use this data to imp- as an input for your model. And then the run function is basically how your model is going to digest the recipe that you prepare. So you are telling basically how the model is going to use the, the, this data in order to perform a specific predictive task. And honestly, this is just based on two functions and that is what we call a scoring script. And also the dependencies are very important because let's say that you are using specific Python packages or specific Python dependencies. So of course you want to just to define those. The last step is again to deploy 
deploy this image that you created with all this information as a web service. And this can be done on the cloud or on different edge services, edge devices. Right now, IoT Edge is a, is a very popular one. And so it's really a package that you, uh, that you create you deployed it as a web service. And this web service, what it has, has a, it contains a lot of information such as the API, the URL, that these are all, uh, URI, sorry, these are all information that you can then use in order to uh, call your web service uh, from different applications. There is a last step that usually customers always uh, require that is about monitoring. Monitoring, of course, you have always to make sure that this uh, pipeline is working, that model deployment flow and also the model development part, they are actually running and there is no, again, interruption, there is no bugs that is there. So that it's more about monitoring the health of your deployment solution. Glad that you brought up that point monitoring because a lot of the time, yeah. I that, that is like a missing component of what people forgot to brought up. Right. I totally agree. Yes. Yeah, and and there seems to be lack of open source tools on monitoring ML models in, in, the, in the current landscape at the moment compared to like how the step up the machine learning workflow. So yeah, thanks a lot for bringing that up. Yeah, absolutely. And you also have written like quite a few blog posts on this feature called automated machine learning. Yeah. You know, this is a breakthrough from Microsoft Research Division that is essentially a recommended system for machine learning pipelines. Yeah, would you mind just uh, explaining uh, automated machine learning for the uninitiated? Yes. So automated machine learning is, uh, is again, is a, is a feature which is uh, implemented, is, uh, is included in Azure Machine Learning. So you can leverage that, use that feature uh, when you're using Azure Machine Learning. But in general, it's a concept that is uh, very popular um, right now. There is AutoML is the general concept. And there are many different companies that are uh, offering these features, this uh, capability. This capability is just about uh, selection of the best model for you based, of course, on the data and the uh, task that you're trying to accomplish. And then also uh, what we call the uh, hyperparameter uh, hyper tuning uh, process. So basically this uh, capability was developed by Microsoft Research, specifically this capability that then was trans translated into a feature for Azure Machine Learning. And it is about really uh, based on your type of data and based on the task, let's say that you find yourself in front of a classification problem. Right now, there are three different tasks that are supported. Is, uh, these are classification, regression, and forecasting. Uh, so let's say that you are in a classification situation. So you can select classification. And then there are a number of different parameters that you can define. Like, for example, what's the metric that you want to, to use in order to uh, make sure that your model is getting a good accuracy and uh, in order to evaluate your model or also how many iteration you want automated machine learning to run for you because of course it depends also a lot on you know if you're running on CPU or GPU and uh, also what's the type of data set that you are using so you want to define the number of iteration and then additional uh, parameters such as if there are some models that you want to blacklist or whitelist uh, there are different again parameters and configuration that you can uh, define. And then basically this feature is running a different machine learning uh, pipelines uh, in parallel. And uh, the results that you are getting for, uh, from this uh, feature is again the best model based on your data set, uh, based on your uh, task and also based on the configuration that you define. And uh, they also do 
hyperparameter tuning for you. So you don't have to manually uh, tune a model every time that you run it to make sure that you got the best configuration in order to get a very accuracy model. But this is, uh, AutoML is actually doing it for you. So I think it was a great example for Microsoft to show, first of all, how research is extremely important in machine learning and how research in general should be translated in real products to make sure that our customer and specifically data scientists are doing their job in a better way. Because of course, as you can understand, automated machine learning is going to save a lot of time for data scientists. But this doesn't mean that we are not going to need a data scientist. Data scientists are still need to be there because all the data preparation, all the implementation of the solution, the deployment still needs to be done. And also because, as I said in my InfoQ article, always keeping a human in the loop is very important. So automated machine learning can help you making the process better and faster, but you always need a data scientist there, first of all, to use AutoML, and second, to make sure that you know AutoML is actually all the results that you discuss and you define with your customer. Again, I'm very, very excited about AutoML. I think that when it was launched, they were offering only support for classification and regression. And then they also added forecasting because as you can understand, forecasting is very, is very popular scenario. I'm sure that they are planning for much more capabilities and you know supports in the future um, so it's it's very very nice to see and it's also in line with this democratization um, philosophy of AI and machine learning that you know Microsoft and other uh, technology uh, companies are trying to support that is about again you don't need to be a super PhD to build machine learning models but sometimes tech companies can offer tools to data scientists that can make this process and their work much, much better. Yeah, absolutely. Modeling is, is only like a tiny part of the whole machine learning system, you know, and then it seems like using tools like automated ML is going to help make the process. Yes. So, and I will be happy, um, you know, to share all those links to automated machine learning with the audience. I know that I already shared the demo with you, so feel free to share them also after yeah, this conversation with them. Absolutely. I'll be sure to put the links in the show notes so people can have a chance to take a look at, um, you know, the, the docs and get more uh, exposure to uh, AutoML. So recently, you, you actually been sharing some more information about model interpretability in Azure AI. Why does interpretability matter in machine learning? And what are some of the different methods to interpret models? This is, again, another initiative that was launched by Microsoft Research in terms of responsible machine learning. And most importantly, how our customers can put these into practice with Azure Machine Learning, that of course is our tool to do machine learning on the cloud. It's, I would say that is important because while you are developing AI system as a data scientist, you always have to keep in mind that trust and responsibility, they have to be at the core, at the center of your solution, and not only at the model level, but also at the platform and the process level and the data cleaning level. There are many, many different aspects that I would say responsible machine learning is, is, is touching in this, in this case. And it's extremely important for data scientists at least to be aware of the different tools that they can use to, to make sure that while they are developing their solution, uh, they are also thinking about how to 
make their solution responsible. That's why we use this term responsible machine learning. There are different uh, values that I think are important uh, when we mention responsible machine learning, such as uh, understanding machine learning models, but also protect people and uh, their data, and also uh, control end-to-end -end machine learning uh, process. So you mentioned uh, interpretability. So interpretability is really touching the first value that is understanding machine learning models. Because uh, when you are building something, of course, you have to have packages that uh, are going to help you in understanding why your model is producing specific type of results and what are actually the different data and the different features that are impacting your model and they are somehow driving these uh, results. This is, again, is a way to unpack your machine learning model and be aware of what's going on, why the model is behaving in a specific way. So as you can understand, it's it's part of, in my opinion, of the data science role. Also, um, when I was saying before, like always keeping humans in the loop, I think it's, it's very important when we touch the responsible machine learning because humans in this case, of course, are data scientists and data scientists needs to have their own tool to understand better why the machine learning model that they are building or they are presenting to customers is producing specific type of results. This can be done with a, a Python package that is called the Interpret ML and is a, a open source package so you don't need to be on Azure or you don't need to use Azure machine learning to uh, to use that package because of course this topic is so important for all of us and for our society that uh, you don't want to make that as accessible only on on a cloud platform so it's open source and this is a tool again it's a python package that you can use to interpret and explain your machine learning models better uh, together with the interpretability package there is also the fairness part, which is more about assessing and mitigating uh, different models. Uh, and is another open source package, is a Python package that is call, called FairLearn. Mm -hmm. And both packages, I would say together, both the interpretability and the FairLearn uh, package can help you in building uh, these solutions that are very smart, very intelligent solution, but also responsible, uh, or at least that you are aware of what's going on within the solution. This is why I think this, uh, these tools are extremely important right now. And uh, this is why uh, I think that it's good for all data scientists out there to be aware of uh, the different tools that they can use in order to implement responsible uh, machine learning into their uh, solutions. Absolutely. Well, yeah, just, just kind of going off of what you already mentioned, but, uh, but you talk about fellow, right? And then yes. you wrote that blog post, your most recent blog post is called Machine Fairness. And it introduced Fairlearn, which is a tool to um, assess the, the AI system fairness and mitigate any observed unfairness issue. So, you know, I'm just curious, like, what are the differences between fairness and interpretability? And, you know, how does, how does Fairlearn work, you know, um, under the hood? Yeah, absolutely. No, this is uh, extremely important. So I already mentioned a little bit this uh, in, in my answer, but the interpretability is really just about uh, being sure that uh, uh, when you are both at the, at the training time and also at the inferencing time, you are able to open the models and somehow understand what is going on 
inside. So uh, you never, as a data scientist, you cannot treat your models as just black boxes, uh, but you have to be able to uh, interpret and explain your model. I mentioned on purpose these two different moments that one is the training time and one is the inferencing time because we think that interpretability should be present at both moments. So the first moment is when more like the data scientists are building their solutions. So if you use packages such as InterpretML, you're really going to understand what are the different data points, the different features that are impacting your model and why your model is producing specific results. And this is great for data scientists also because they need to debug their solutions sometimes and have a, a sort of, uh, you know, mirror that understand better, that shows you better uh, why your models uh, are producing specific type of results that can help you a lot also with the debugging or with the feature selection and uh, so to, to make sure that you understand the model very, very well. Uh, the inferencing time is also important in model interpretability because it's more the moment in which you use your solutions for end users. It's more like the consumption side, like a Let's say that you are building a model that is predicting that a specific type of patients are going to suffer of a specific disease, which is important because in the healthcare sector, there are a lot of these models. The, the final users are going just to get these results, okay? Uh, patient ID 1 and 2 are going to get this disease in two, three years, for example. But at that time, you also have to be sure that you can explain as a data scientist or as a business owner why your model is producing specific type of results. And this is still part of the interpretability level. Uh, fairness is a similar. In my opinion, there are like uh, these two parts cannot really um, work uh, independently, even if they are different, but they work very well when you combine as a data scientist the two of them. Fairness is more about uh, assessing the level of uh, bias that is in your uh, solutions. There are many different fairness issues out there. I think that uh, what uh, Microsoft is trying to address with this uh, FairLearn package is harm of allocation and harm of quality of service. So the harm of allocation is when an AI system uh, extends or like uh, withholds opportunities, resources, or information for specific type of groups of people. Uh, for example, hiring, school admissions, or lending. Is, this is a great, uh, a great example of harm of allocation. And then the other issue of fairness is the harm of quality of service. When an AI system does not work as well as for one group of people as it does for another. Uh, for example, voice recognition, uh, sometimes it doesn't really work well with specific group of people and it might fail to work as well for women as it does for men. So there are a lot of uh, these examples that we see. So this is the type of um, fairness that you wanted to address. And there are many, many other um, typologies, of course, of unfairness. But for now, uh, the FernLearn package is addressing these two type of fairness. And thanks to that Python package, you can again assess the level of your fairness in your machine learning model. Yeah, thanks a lot for clarifying that the differences. Right now, you're actually in, in the process of writing a book with Wiley called Machine Learning for Time Series Forecasting with Python. Yes. So, you know, what is your motivation for writing a book? Who are the ideal target audience? And um, when can we expect to see it published? 
Yeah, so I, I think that the book is going to be published in November, December timeframe of this year. The book is uh, targeting uh, mainly developers or people who want to get started with data science and forecasting uh, and machine learning for forecasting. Because it's not really a book, and I wrote this like in the introduction, it's not really a book where there is a lot of, uh, you know, mathematical functions theory, because I think that there are a lot of books out there that, uh, especially from the the academic world who are already doing a great job at explaining the different functions and the different math functions behind the time series, time series forecasting and machine learning. So I have, honestly, if people ask me, I have so many, so many recommendations in terms of that type of theoretical books for machine learning. Uh, however, this is more like a practical manual. So uh, what are the tools that as a data scientist you can use in order to build your end-to-end -end machine learning solutions for forecasting scenarios? Uh, the motivation behind this book is exactly is like to fill these gaps between too much theory and too much math. And on the other side, you have a lot of tutorials here and there that explain you how to do one specific thing in Python. There is nothing in the middle that somehow explains you the concept, of course, because you need to understand the concept, uh, but then immediately shows you how uh, to use a specific Python package to implement that concept. So that's why I put together this book, uh, of course, is based on the many different years of experience as a data scientist, and uh, I hope that people are going to like it. Yeah, fascinating. And uh, will you actually put the code on, on GitHub or so? Yes. I don't know if it's going to be on GitHub, but they're going to be Jupyter Notebooks. This, I, I, this is a great question. I have to ask Wiley if we can put some of the codes on GitHub. There is going to be like a lot of code, of course, and examples, and there are different notebooks that I prepare for this book. But that's a good question. I will get back to you on this. I have to ask the publisher. <laughs> Outside of work, you have also been a mentor for, uh, you know, PhD and postdoc student you know, at uh, institutions such as Harvard, MIT, and Columbia. Yep. So judging from your experience, what are some of the skill gaps between research and industry? And what could be your advice for a graduate researchers looking to transition into the industry? In general, I have to say that uh, in the past few years, I've been seeing a lot of uh, new programs, both uh, at the you know, bachelor, but also master level type of programs that are already preparing people for a specific profession that is data science. So there are a lot of, for example, masters in data science, a lot of bachelor also in computer science with a strong focus on machine learning or AI. So I think that the last, the, the latest probably generations of students already have a good package with them that is already preparing them for industry. However, data science is a field that, uh, in my opinion, is also open to people who don't have uh, these specific degrees, because again, data science is all about uh, using uh, data to answer questions. So it's really about uh, being able to extract information, to extract the knowledge from data. So there are many other degrees, like uh, from physics, from statistics, from economics that can be like a very, very good for people who wants then to 
transitioning to data science careers. So specifically for those type of uh, people, I would suggest to uh, focus a lot also on the technology side, because uh, again, I think that students uh, most of the time, they focus a lot on the modeling and theory side, but they don't think in terms of, okay, what are the different tools, open source tools, frameworks out there that I can use in order to skill myself and also to build the solution. So how can I really push the, all this knowledge that I have uh, and make sure that I know also how to build end-to-end -end machine learning applications, for example. So uh, this is something that I really encourage um, students to do. There are so many offers for students that are you know, free or free trials. So I really encourage, encourage students to go out there and try different cloud platforms, different uh, frameworks, machine learning frameworks and be really familiar with them. Because at the end of the day, if you look for a job in the industry, being able to, uh, to know the different options that you have out there in order to build uh, real uh, AI uh, applications is probably the most important part. So yes, this is the main you know, suggestions, advice that I have for, for students. And it seems like you mentioned a little bit earlier in our conversation that you, you've been working with a customer in education. Yes. Right, and it seems like trying to educate them on how to use Microsoft Azure is, is a good way to uh, constructing that end-to-end -end solution. That's right. Lastly, so reflecting on your career thus far, how do you think that your educational backgrounds in economics and uh, tech management contribute to your success in a data science career? This is a wonderful question. I think that is uh, related also to the, you know, the six best practices, the six principles that I, I wrote in that article about how really you can build uh, and you, ma you can manage uh, data science uh, teams. Having these backgrounds in economics really gave me a perspective of anything that is related to a business or to economics. Uh, for me, that type of data, it's somehow easy to understand and also the type of processes behind businesses, but also economics are very, uh, I would say, easy to understand because I have been studying them for a lot. And then uh, that helped me also to have this uh, strong uh, overview and connection between uh, data that is, of course, all my career uh, outside uh, academia has been focused on data and technology and how these uh, uh, data technology and data science can impact uh, businesses and operations. Uh, I think that that type of uh, perspective uh, was given to me because of my previous studies and always think about, again, data science as a tool that companies can use in order to improve their business processes. And uh, sometimes I, I, wor uh, I work with uh, other people, other developers who are wonderful from a technology point of view, because for example, they study computer science, they study machine learning. So eventually they're even stronger than myself in these. However, they don't uh, for them, doesn't come easy to understand also the economic aspect of something, the business aspect of, uh, you know, a solution and how this can really produce a, a benefit or can really impact uh, the business of Microsoft or of customers. So that is something that, uh, in my opinion, is on, on my advantage because, again, studying economics and most importantly, using data to study economics really helped me a lot uh, in this. And then once, of course, I started working as a 
data scientist, I needed to keep learning because this is something that you never stop doing. You know, keep learning new uh, technologies, new approaches, uh, new machine learning algorithms. Uh, so that's part, of course, it's, it's always with me and I, I, I never stop learning, honestly. Awesome. Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing that perspective. And I think that your point about, uh, you know, developers lacking business skills kind of tie back to that, that second principle, right? Which is translating between modeling metrics and, and business metric, right? How you accuracy yes. related to money being safe or things of that nature. So um, exactly. yeah, just having that awareness of the, the, the business impact is certainly a very, very important. So Francesca, at this point of our conversation, I want to move on into the final closing segment. Okay. I'm going to ask you um, three rapid fire questions and you know you can just keep them for, for the listeners through to hear. Number one, name three people in the data science universe whose work you really admire. So first of all, the first one is Hilary Mason. I think she's is a great example of a woman working in the data science. And I think that currently she's a co-founder of Hindendor. The other one is Andrew Andrew. He's a you know he's a co-founder of Coursera, Stanford professor, and of course he has been working at Google as well. It's it's really a great person and data scientist to look at. And the final one is Hannah Wallach, who is a um, researcher for Microsoft Research in New York. So she's researching data science and AI and how we can build the responsible machine learning solutions. Fantastic. Second question. Name one book that you could recommend for people to develop a better analytical mindset. I really recommend a book that I read when I started my career as a data scientist. This is an introduction to probability theory and its applications by William Feller. I know that it sounds a very heavy type of book, but I think that if you understand a little bit of probability and how you can apply some of these concepts to your own applications, then an entire world opens up for you. Because at the end, you know, data science and machine learning are strictly related, uh, closely related to also all the probability theory that is out there. So this is really going to help you with your analytical uh, mindset. Brilliant. Lastly, imagine that you could send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? I would say education. I know that there are a lot of students out there who are struggling because right now they cannot be on campus, they cannot you know, complete or take their classes on person. I would say, I would just tweet to them and I would say that this is a very challenging moment for all of us across the world. However, they should try to focus on a specific data science problem that they love and they need to leverage technology in general in order to make sure that they keep learning because learning is always going to be with them even if they're going to start you know a career in data science after that they start a career in data science and i will tell them that there are so many resources right now online that are free and they can study in order to start a job in career or a career in data science or also switch career so if you are you know working in another sector and you are interested in data science 
so it's a, it's a good moment to be online and to learn. Of course, I would summarize this because it's it's a <laughs> it's a long answer. I would summarize this in a tweet, but I really think that uh, you know the future of education and learning about data science is very very important right now. And I know that a lot of people are struggling because learning online is not the easiest things to do. But uh, I. I want just to remember people that, you know, we are in this together. We are all here and we need to support each other online. Yeah, that's a very uh, uplifting message to close out our conversation. So yeah, Francesca, I really appreciate you spending your time today talking with me. I really uh, enjoy learning about sort of your educational background coming from Italy, some of your research in economics and um, tech operation management, your transition into becoming a data scientist at Microsoft some of the wonderful work with Azure to kind of democratize education of AI, various research and techniques in AutoML, model fairness, model interpretability, as well as some very wonderful resources for, for people to listen. And I'll be sure to put everything in the show notes so people can have a chance to review and reach out if they have any questions. And yeah, very looking forward to uh, seeing your book when they come out in the next few months. So yeah, that's Thank you. That's Francesca. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.